Toots. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Brave New Church. This week we pick up where we left off with part two of our multi-part series, Fixing Our Broken System. Undoubtedly, something about the way that we do ministry and that we do church in the world today is not connecting with more and more people. And as we've discussed on past podcasts, this is something that cuts across the generations. This is true of people at all ages and stages of life. And the kind of ways they go about asking questions about meaning, purpose, and spirituality in their lives. Many of the models that we have in the church are rooted in a particular type of assumed question that people used to ask in a specific way. But what we're beginning to see and starting to realize is that the kinds of questions people are asking and the ways that they are asking these spiritual questions is changing. So today, to continue to explore how do we fix the broken system of the church so that the practices and habits and models of ministry that we follow actually help us work towards the goals that we claim that we have, we're going to travel from the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer to the pub with Pastor Keith Anderson to the Lutheran Seminary at Philadelphia with Dr. David Lowe's. And we're going to ask the question, what does it mean? to meet people where they are with the kinds of spiritual questions that they are asking in today's world. To kick off the conversation, I sit down with Pastor Keith Anderson from Upper Dublin Lutheran Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania. Keith has written a great deal about the digital church and the way in which the places people make meaning and the sorts of conversations that they're having about faith in today's world are changing. And so I invite you to listen in as Keith and I sit down and talk about where exactly those places that people are creating meaning are. So Keith, I hear that you had your 15 seconds of true celebrity recently, and we're on the same front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, you and Tom Brady were the headliners this past week. Is that correct? That's that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Tom, terrific. Uh, yeah, and you're uh, a Patriots fan. If, if uh, I am, I dare say. It's <laughs> not a very popular uh, stance, but you know, five Super Bowls, not bad. <laughs> so, what, so what was going on there? How did that happen? Yeah, so we um, have a pub theology night once a month. We call it God on Tap. And this month, we picked the topic of how to have difficult conversations. And that was really inspired by a lot by the election and um, the campaigning and, and you know, kind of the, the results and just the, the mood of the country. Uh, I've been having conversations with a number of people who have just said, you know, we have these good friends and I just can't talk to them about this at all or of family members, and we just, you know, we just can't discuss it. It's too difficult, um, which is really 
sad, you know, I mean, like there's just a lot of emotions going on around, you know, kind of the state of affairs in the country, but just to hear the pain that people were experiencing about that. It's like, well, pub theology got on tap is really about uh, the belief that conversations matter and that conversations can change us and kind of through a ripple effect, change our neighborhoods, change our world. And so I thought, why don't we have a conversation about how to have those conversations? And I invited um, a member of our church who has worked in um, facilitating difficult conversations about race uh, or um, war, ethnic issues. Um, She's kind of run the whole gambit in her work and worlding conversation at Penn State University. And so she came and facilitated our conversation, and she gave us tools to use so when we went back home, talking with family or friends, um, that would help. And it was great. It was one of our biggest nights. So people were really hungry to hear it. We had a lot of people come and a bunch of new people come to it. And people left feeling really, really good about it. And people there expressed differing points of view. They voted for different people. Um, they were wondering, you know, why were you seeing it this way? And what did you hope to accomplish about whether you voted for Trump or you marched or, you know, you protested or whatever the case would be. And so I think we listened and heard each other and shared with each other in a way that, you know, it's pretty hard, can be pretty hard to do in a church. And I think um, being in that space, having had that conversation for, you know, every month for four years helped. I think being in a pub helped, <laughs> Uh, not just the beer, but sort of the more relaxed, casual space. So it wasn't like somebody's got to win here, you know, or it's going to, um, this is going to somehow drive the direction of our congregation. You know, we were just at the pub and we were having a beer and listen, you know, trying to kind of listen and talk and, and use these skills. And, uh, so I got connected to this reporter at the Inquirer who was doing a story. The story was really about, um, how, like a lot of counselors and therapists have been talking with people about the election. Um, and I have, we have a good friend who is a, a psychologist and she sees that a lot. People who come in and they're just so upset about everything. And, um, and the reporter said, her editor said, well, what about clergy? You know, I bet they're experiencing that too, which I am. So, uh, most of our conversation actually revolved around the pastoral care that's been involved uh, since since the election for people and I you know phone calls and texts and lunches with people around that uh, but then we also talked about you know got on tap and and that gathering around helping people to have those conversations what is it about the pub or these kinds of uh, spaces that are kind of outside the walls of the church that allows for these conversations to take place in a way that maybe I mean w- would they be able to happen the same way? in the church building or kind of what's unique about it? You know, I guess part of what works about it is that these are people, these are places that people are already gathering. You know, they get together with friends for a beer or a coffee, you know, they get together and talk over dinner or lunch. And so, you know, these are kind of natural gathering conversational places. And uh, what we're trying to do is uh, connect with, connect with that. And I just think there is a different vibe that puts people at ease that we're not um, somehow battling over any, you know, kind of congregational turf. 
Um, and I think it just puts people at ease because sometimes when you walk into a church, there's this feeling like, well, I don't have the answers. You know, I don't feel like I know my Bible or my theology so well. And, um, and the gatherings are typically a little more formal. Um, you know, there's, it's, it has been very expert oriented where that expert is the pastor or a teacher or guest presenter or, you know, um, and so there's this dynamic of kind of the, the expert and the, the learners. And so you do that enough times and people think I don't have the answers because the expert has the answers, you know, and they're going to bring it to me and I'm going to receive it. And at the pub we're we kind of think of it as an expert free zone. So there's no experts. I don't hold forth. We have a topic and we kick it around. Uh, we learn from each other in the process. It doesn't have to be wrapped up in a nice theological bow at the end. Um, you know, but, um, and at first it just doesn't seem like at first it didn't seem like, is this a real thing? You know, like, is it, uh, but more and more, like the more we did it, it was like people got insights from each other and we're asking questions about kind of our everyday lived experience. You know, we're asking faith questions and God questions about that. And so we're able to see our own lives, which we're experts in each of us, you know, through the lens of faith. So I think that's one of the shifts that we're seeing in our culture in many ways as it intersects with the church is that I have the sense, at least, I'm wondering if you do as well, that people aren't so much looking for a neat set of theological answers to questions that they may or may not be asking that come kind of handed down from above, some tradition, some theology, um, but more so are looking for a space in whatever form that is to to ask the questions that are emerging out of their day-to-day lived real experiences. Do you have that sense? Yeah, I think so. I think people are constantly, we're all constantly making meaning of our lives, right? What am I supposed to do? Is this the right job for me? Um, You know, am I a good parent? And how am I doing that? And, you know, what difference am I making in the world? And, um, you know, what is, what are my outlets for creative expression and giving back and, I mean, everybody's asking those questions, whether you go to church or not. And I think to have kind of safe, supportive places where people can express those are really important. I mean, I find that for myself, right? Like I, you know, just had dinner with a friend this past week and uh, a lot of the conversation was just thinking about, you know, um, my sense of call and ministry and what I'm here to do and how I can best help people. Um, you know, other colleagues in ministry and, and that was an entire, like, that was a huge gift for me to be able to think out loud and have somebody reflect back and encourage me in the process. Um, and it's, it's probably more rare than it should be that we would like it to be. So if we can be that for each other, um, you know, whether you've come every month to our gathering or it's your first time there, I think there's a, there's a real gift in that. Um, so it's really, I think, trying to, you know, find common ground, you know, this, these, these are, we, we answer those questions differently, but we all had those questions. Keith really drives home the point that the places that people are making meaning and engaging in questions of faith and spirituality today 
are definitely not the places we would have assumed even a decade ago. And in fact, if we try to maintain the models, the locations, the buildings, the styles, we're going to be having a conversation in a space where people aren't even there with us. To break down some of the reasons behind this, we go back to David Lose, who we heard from last week. As he describes how many of the ways that we even understand faith and often talk about it are counterproductive to conversations of meaning and spirituality in today's world, and how the categories that we limit ourselves with can in fact hamstring us and prevent us from doing meaningful ministry in this brave new world. I think particularly right now, this particular cultural moment, the dominant popular religious notion of faith is that it is kind of intellectual assent to some propositions or doctrines. It's kind of a cognitive yes, so that the Apostles' Creed becomes a laundry list of things you must believe in order to be a Christian. And that dichotomy between believing certain things absolutely and you're a Christian, or not believing, doubt and questioning and you're not, I think permeates our culture. And, and the traditions stemming from the Reformation have so much to offer as a lively alternative because across the biblical witness and up until about the 17th century, the dominant understanding of faith was not knowledge, but rather it was trust. I read an interesting study a couple years ago that traced theological language and the move between two particular Latin words, one that had dominated the period of the Reformation, and it was the word cerno, a Latin word, which is the root of our word discernment. Right? It was this recognizing of a sifting and sorting and listening. Faith was about being called towards something. And then mid-17th century and on, the word that, that dominates, cerno almost disappears, is the word certo, which is the root of our word certainty. It's this really interesting shift from a sense of faith about being discernment, of something active, intensive about it, to suddenly it being about intellectual certainty and ecstaticness. And we have the invitation to, to call that in, into question and offer an alternative. Because biblically in most of the church, it's about trust. And it's about trust particularly that when you feel that, when you're caught up in it, it allows you to take chances, to, to make decisions, to risk things that you care about, even to risk your life. It's faith in the sense of when you say, I have faith in you to someone, it's not I believe facts about you, it's that I have confidence in the relationship we have, and that confidence allows me to do certain things, which means we're at a particular time where we can say to the whole world, faith is not about having all the answers. It just isn't. And until very recently, it never was. I'm really, I'm always intrigued. I love, I love uh, Bible studying, particularly in the, in the Gospels, and I'm always particularly attracted to the places where different Gospel stories differ just a little, because I see those differences as clues to what Matthew or John or whoever was trying to confess. Um, so I'm always kind of paying attention to that. But when it comes to the resurrection stories, which are filled with kind of awesome little variations, I'm also incredibly struck by one commonality, one profound commonality across the four Gospels that I think we've underplayed. And that is very simply, in not one of the four evangelists' account of Jesus' resurrection, 
when the news of Jesus' resurrection comes or when Jesus himself shows up to the company of disciples, in not one of those accounts do the disciples say, just like you promised. <laughs> or, we've been waiting because you told us to. Or, actually, I thought you were going to be here about 20 minutes ago. You're running a little late. Like, nowhere is there any sense from the disciples who have spent the last three years with Jesus, who are closer to him than anyone, who have heard his preaching and teaching, who heard him predict his death and resurrection three times. The dominant response is not excitement or satisfaction. It is, do you remember? Disbelief, fear, doubt. I don't think that gets portrayed anywhere better than in Luke's gospel, where when the women come back from the empty tomb, having heard the proclamation of the angels, and they share that word with the men. Now, I want to be careful. I'm making no gender generalizations here at all. But when the women come bearing this incredible news to the men, the men say, in Luke's Gospel, do you remember? They regarded it as an idle tale. An idol is a really... I-D-L-E, a really soft way of translating that Greek. The Greek word is leros, which is the root of our word delirious. <laughs> which means that the women came from the empty tomb with this incredible good news, affirming what their Lord had already told them would happen. And the men say, we think you're out of your freaking mind. <laughs> And honestly, when it comes to someone being raised from the dead, maybe that's not the worst response. I sometimes wonder if in our congregations, when on Easter we say, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, and there's no one there saying, are you sure? <laughs> or really? Honest? Because I don't see resurrection that much. How do you know? I think maybe we've sort of been, it's been domesticated. We don't take it perhaps as seriously as we should. When, uh, when my kids were younger, when I think they were around 10 and 12, um, we lived at the time in St. Paul, we went to a church that was right literally down the hill from us. It was a five minute walk, which of course meant we were often late. <laughs> you know? um, this one particular Sunday, it was Easter Sunday and we were late. And you know what happens to you on Easter when you're late you got to sit all the way up front because all the good seats have been taken. <laughs> you know? So we are up front, and the, it was kind of set up so if it was a chairs. It was a flexible worship space, not fixed pews. And so in this particular Sunday, the pulpit was here, and there were uh, chairs coming out and down and around, like kind of like a U. And we were sitting just to the left. And the pastor's in the middle of this very enthusiastic Easter sermon. And my daughter, my 10-year-old daughter, Katie, leans over and says, you know, Daddy, I'm not sure Jesus really rose from the dead. I wonder if his friends just missed him so much they wanted that to be true. Not the first Christian to think that. <laughs> um, David Strauss and the others who kind of invent biblical criticism had some really similar questions. So I was kind of caught up by the depth of that question, even if it was kind of unexpected on Easter Sunday. And then Katie follows up with, Daddy, what do you think? <laughs> and to tell you the truth, what I'm thinking at the moment is, Katie, it's Easter. <laughs> and the preacher's like right there. 
even if it's true, don't tell people because your dad needs a job. <laughs> so all of that sort of going on in my head in that moment. What I say to her, of course, is, you know, sweetie, that's a, that's a great question. Can we talk about it after church? <laughs> so she nods, that's fine. And after church, we walk out. And I said, you know, okay, that was an incredible question. You want to talk about it a little more? No, no, that's okay. <laughs> All right, that moment lost, perhaps understandably. But there are other moments for those kinds of questions. First time I was working on this with a, with a group of congregational leaders, one gentleman in the back uh, just said out of sort of a frustration and some grief, I think, he said, okay, okay, so my sophomore and college son just came home and told me he's an atheist. Am I supposed to just congratulate him? I said, no, I don't, I don't think you have to congratulate him. But you might ask him, what were some of the questions he's been wrestling with that led him to this? Or what are the, some of the things he wonders about? And what in faith or church hasn't always matched up? You might listen to him and honor him and be in a relationship with him and see where it takes you both. What helps me when I think about this is to remember that the earliest Christians weren't actually called Christians. Do you remember what they were called in the Acts of the Apostles? People of the way. It's kind of cool. They were people of the way. They saw something in the life and ministry of Jesus that they wanted to be about and wanted to emulate that. They were people of the way and they were people on the way. It wasn't that they were expected to have all these questions. It was that finally... Faith and doubt aren't opposites, but if you lead, lead even a remotely engaged life, they often go hand in hand. Sometimes that way is really pleasant and beautiful and enjoyable, and sometimes it's not. But no matter what's going on, how do we provide a wide welcome to people of all generations? This isn't just the emerging generation, but focusing particularly on this emerging generation that has increasingly found other places more welcoming to their questions and offering them more resources to construct meaningful lives. How do we provide a wide welcome to them and their doubts and their questions and challenges and all the rest? David's reminder that we are people of the way and that we have been from the start is an inspiring starting place for me as I think about what it means to be walking together forward into the future of the church. It's a reminder that the church has always been changing, that the kinds of spiritual questions people have been asking, the sorts of programs or ministries or church buildings that have been built has always shifted from generation to generation, from age to age. It's such a helpful reminder that so many of the trappings of church are just that. And they can be good and wonderful and helpful things until they're not anymore. Until they become crutches. Until they eventually become obstacles to authentic spiritual engagement and journeying on this way, this path, together. And so as we continue to walk together into the future, it's helpful to remember that although the scenery might change, that the road ahead of us is as sure as the road behind us. So I thank David for that reminder today as we continue to move forward in our conversation about how we can fix this broken system. Well, I hope that you've all enjoyed today's podcast, and I hope you'll all visit us at our online home 
at bravenewchurch.org. At Brave New Church, you'll find a library of resources to guide you forward in your conversation and work of exploring what a Brave New Church for a Brave New World looks like, as well as Partners for the Journey, a weekly blog, and other tools. And so, may God bless you in your ministry. May God bless you in your life as you walk your spiritual path and as you continue forward along the way. And until next time, my friends, may you discover what God is already up to in your life and in your neighborhood.